Hi, it's me, Ben. Um, and this is sort of an ad, but it's not really an ad because I'm telling you about something that I give a damn about. Um, we've talked in the past about the ATX Television Festival. You've heard recordings as podcasts uh, that we've put out that were recorded at ATX from past years. It really is one of my favorite uh, things to do, one of my favorite times of year. It's happening this year, June 7th to 10th. It's right around the corner. Uh, so go to Austin and do it. And they're, they're doing some cool stuff there. They've got a Nash Bridges uh, writer's room reunion. They got the creators of The Good Wife and The Good Fight, the people behind The Americans, Boy Meets World, Drunk History. Uh, David Simon will be there. But in addition to the festival, ATX has started a podcast, and you should listen to it. It takes a deep dive with some of the biggest names in television. It's called The TV Campfire. It's a podcast about all things TV. It's like going to the festival, but you don't have to leave your home. What I love about the festival is it was made by Caitlin and Emily, who are two women who love TV so much that they decided to start this festival about it. And they discovered that there are thousands of us who feel the same way and want to flood into Austin to be a part of that and celebrate television. Um, it's often described as the festival and the podcast is this very same thing for people who love DVD extras, for people who own the complete West Wing box set, for people who own the complete The Wire box set, the complete Gossip Girl box set. ATX Television Festival is the ultimate summer getaway for TV fans and industry. And now you can make the trip with your headphones. The podcast takes some of the best guests and some of the most interesting topics that are explored at the festival on the panels that you've heard on this very podcast. And they do a deep dive into that world. They've already put out a couple of episodes. Uh, the first one is all about showrunners. It's got Carlton Cuse and Carrie Aaron, friends of this show, friends of the ATX Festival, uh, talking about what it means to be a showrunner. And it's a lot. Um, They've put out an episode about music and TV uh, that Jason Kadams uh, is a part of. You'll hear future episodes with the creators behind shows such as Friends, One Day at a Time, The Good Wife, Cougar Town, Scrubs, The Wire. Get your David Simon in your ears. You don't want to miss a single episode. Subscribe to The TV Campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. And see you at ATX. Forever. Today we've got a great panel, a showrunner defined. It has Greg Garcia, creator of My Name is Earl, Tracy Wigfield, the creator of Great News, Danielle Sanchez-Witzel, our old pal who, uh, from The Carmichael Show, Bob Daly, uh, the showrunner of Superior Donuts, and Javi Griot-Markswatch, the creator of The Middleman. He's working on the new Dark Crystal show, so it should be a really interesting conversation. This panel is moderated by Julie Pleck, creator of The Vampire Diaries. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! So the question that always comes up in these panels early on is, define showrunner. And I'm sure it's a question that we have always been asked individually, so I thought that it might be more fun to do like the lightning round, kind of like that game where you have to say the name of the movie and the name of the actor in the movie and then another movie that they're in, and you just keep going until you can't go anymore, until somebody messes up or freezes or panics. Cool. So, so starting, <laughs> starting with you and then circling around and around until we die or just want to put a bullet in our heads. Um, name one thing that defines what a showrunner does. 
and then we're just going to keep going. What Somebody if can I mess up it. from the start? What if it's right out of the gate? I <laughs> ah, buzzer. Um, the first word that came to my mind, uh, because my mentor, who is on the panel, and we'll discover who he is at some point in here, um, told me the showrunner is the general, that, the, that they're looking for the general. So I'll say it's the general. Perfect. The showrunner is the only person in the room who knows what the show is and has to tell everybody what the show is so that they can do their job. Uh, to me, when you graduate from being a writer to a showrunner, it's like going from being a babysitter to a parent. When you're, like, when you're a babysitter, you're kind of in charge of the kid, but you can go home at night and not worry about it. The showrunner is the person that stays up all night worrying about the kid. And also a decision maker. Like when you're a, a writer, uh, a, your job is making you know, decisions all the time about the scene and the script and the jokes and whatever. But then, God, when you're a showrunner, no, people never stop asking you questions about what color should the cat be? And <laughs> is the hat big enough? And I don't care, you know, <laughs> but you have to. Um, I would say also the showrunner is the host of the party. Good, good. Um, daily task. Pick one, anyone. Lightning round. We're going. We're, we're continuing. Um, I think deciding what, what the writers are going to do for the day was my every night, like Bob's saying, uh, every, I would dream about it, think about it in the morning and when I was in the shower. So it's like uh, a, plan, a plan for the writers for the day. Yeah, uh, it, it be in the, uh, more than anything else, it is be in the writer's room and tell the writers what the show is. Um, and I'm going to hit that point over and over again because I think that it's very easy for people who become showrunners, and especially uh, in this new age of television in which the apprenticeship ladder isn't as defined as it used to be, to think that, that oh, it's about going into the editing room and finding the show, or it's, you know, whatever. And it literally is about training the 12 apostles, who are the other writer-producers, to go onto the land and tell everybody what the show is so that everybody else can do their job. Uh, ordering lunch is... Yeah. <laughs> but Greg... I worked with Greg Garcia, also my mentor. Um, uh, uh, and Greg came up with the world's greatest innovation for ordering lunch, which is a carnival wheel with everybody's name on it. And we spin the wheel every morning, uh, and whoever it lands on gets to pick lunch. And it's, it's the greatest innovation in show running. <laughs> it saves about an hour's worth of discussion, yeah. for yes. sure. Is, isn't, isn't that just deciding who's going who's gonna to get cussed out for the bad lunch? That really is just preemptively deciding well, who's going to well, take the blame, fate, right? Fate there, is chosen. Actually, but we do it on the Carmichael show too. Greg was my mentor, um, and uh, I sell wheels a, as a side business, a, making you know, in, a fortune. In, in, in drama, we make you wait till the eleventh episode to reveal that. But I, the point is, there's a, I did, because people do fight about it. So you can veto for five dollars, and there's a and there's a jackpot, and so you can hit that jackpot eventually. So that's how you drive it up. So it, everything is figured. I mean, there there are so many rules. We had a handbook about how the wheel worked because there were so many rules about the wheel. But it's a fantastic jolt of adrenaline first thing in the morning that, to get the day started. It's all downhill from there, unfortunately. Um, we, I, last year was my first year running a show, and I stupidly, one of my jobs was I had to alone pick lunch every day, no. which is insane. And then this year, I was like, this is my one innovation. It's like, we're going to go down the hierarchy, and someone has to pick, but that wheel sounds much better. I would um, also say... Um, uh, a job is like kind of running interference with like studio and network and pitching episodes to them and, and kind of making everything seem like everything's going okay, don't worry, you know. Um, gosh, I, I would say um, 
stay positive and be decisive um, is a number one and two things that, that I try to concentrate on. I mean, um, like Tracy was saying, you, you'll get like some people ask you questions all day long. That's all that happens is people ask you questions. And they've worked very hard on stuff and they'll show you, like she said, they'll show you five hats. Or which hat, you know? And then if you just sit, you know, just, it's easy. You just, it doesn't matter. So you just pick absolutely that one right there. Yeah. That is the hat. And that was that is such, the hat. I don't even know why, but that's the hat. It was such a lesson to learn too, because like your impulse when you're tired is to be like, I don't give a fuck. Like who cares what hat? But it's like, you have to care what hat because some person just spent two days picking out hats and printing out pictures for you and stuff. So when exactly what Greg and says. Always, and, it, and it makes people feel confident too, yes, because there's a yes. lot of people around there like, holy shit, he knows what hat I he love wants. that hat. And then if you change your mind, you like quietly later you go, you know, I was wrong about the hat. Let's <laughs> By the way, totally. Like that, the beauty of this job is if you pick the wrong hat, you can actually go back and fix it later. You just have to figure out how to pay for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so what these guys are saying is basically a showrunner defined is you're the boss. You're the general. You're the coach and the captain. Um, you are the one that's leading. What did you say, Javi? Leading your, your, you're leading apostles, the apostles. Yeah. Um, there isn't a single part of the job that isn't uh, needed to be ordered by, uh, managed by, approved by, or discussed by this group of people right here. So, you know, I, I love to talk about how absolutely god-awfully horrific the job can be. And I also, every now and then, like to remember that it's still aspirational to have this job, and so that we should also talk about what's great about it. So I'm going to sort of target, I'm going to target you starting, Bob. Um, you seem like a nice guy, so why don't you tell everybody what's amazing about actually being a showrunner? When you've, when you've kind of worked your way up you know, because it, it takes generally, you know, 10, 12 years to sort of work your way up to being a showrunner. You get to see people make the, what you think is the wrong decision for 10, 12 years. And so it's great to be the person that gets to pick the hat, you know, uh, as, as, pain, as painful as it can be sometimes. It's wonderful to be, to, to feel like, oh, my, my creative input is the one that people are listening to now. Um, you know, you, you, like I said, you spend your whole career building to that point. So, you know, it's easy to, it is hard, but it is easy to forget that, like, people care what hat I, what hat I want. That's a nice feeling. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a very difficult job, that, and, and I'm sure it's much like, not, it's not like these jobs, but like, you don't know what it is to be like a doctor until you're a doctor. It's certainly not as important as that. But like, you know, but at the end of the day, it's hard, but you are in charge of playing make-believe. Like, you're in charge of a bunch of people playing make-believe and, and getting something done. And, um, and the thrill, too, of being able to take your own vision and be in charge and get it the way you want it to be. That doesn't happen in film. You know, in film, you write something and you hand it over, and then you usually just go see it at the movie theater, and you go, "What? What did they do to this?" Um, I've recently uh, done a, a, a theater thing, and it's like, and I, I hate it because it's like, "Oh, wait a second, I'm not in charge. I like being in charge." So that's that's the. I think that's one of the best things about being a showrunner is you can take your vision from the beginning to the end and sink or swim. It's it's what you want it to do. I think, I think for me, it's, it's all of that, but it's also, um, I've, I've probably been doing this for about 23 years now, and the beginning of my career was during a hinge period uh, between, you know, sort of the really, really bad age of television, the slightly better age of television, and now the golden age of television. So, uh, one, one, and, and one of the, th I, I feel like I've experienced a sort of madness, rage, and abuse of a lot of people from a lot of different periods of, 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 this, of this medium's history. So in addition to being able to be in charge, to call the shots, to, to have your vision be seen, one of the things that 
that I'm proudest of uh, about the, 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 my tenure as a showrunner is that I was able to take a, a small group of people and they, they've sort of learned to do that. Like they can, I can actually say that they learned to do that job from me. And so I see them now go into the world and one of them just had a show premiere here. Um, you know, another one is a co-executive producer on a top 10 show. And I look at them almost the way that one would with their kids. And for me, you know, my, my personal idol of showrunning is a man named of showrunning is a man named Michael Piller, who uh, show ran Star Trek: The Next Generation. And the best thing about Star Trek: The Next Generation for me isn't just the cultural impact of that show, how amazing it was, how many people it influenced, but that literally the Michael Piller way of running a show put a good six to ten top grade showrunners in drama television on the air today. And I think that that's the legacy that you want to leave behind, is you want to also have a group of people who are going to show up at your funeral and say, that guy was the coach in my coaching tree, and look at all the people that I trained to be great. So, Danielle and Tracy, feel free to carry on with the up with people portion of, of, of this question. That being said, if you would also like to represent the why this job will kill you in your sleep and drive you to the depths of insanity, please feel free to, to make that shift as well. I just, I don't, I don't know why Greg Garcia didn't say what Javi just said about people who, who he trained who succeeded. I don't understand why that's not, how is that not the greatest part? I because don't. my dream is to go to your funerals. <laughs> And be able to say that. I don't want you at mine. That's, it's, You're like Highlander with a laugh track. It's, that's never going to happen. Um, I, I love, I'll say what I love. I mean, it is very hard, but I, I'll, you know, echoing what people said, you start as a staff writer and you go, I want to be a showrunner someday. And then all of a sudden you're a showrunner. You're like, oh shit, I'm a showrunner. Um, but I like the personal challenge of it. I mean, I, there are times I've never had this experience in work and I've certainly worked on hard shows and done difficult things in my life, but there, there's never been a time where, I mean, maybe daily where I go, oh my God, I might not be able to get this done, or I, I don't know if I can figure this out, or you know, TV is a moving train, and so there, there's only so much time to get it done, and then it, and then it gets shot, and then it goes on, you know, it goes on the air, and, and there's something very gratifying about just making, you know, just making it, and you don't always make it, and that's why some episodes are good, and some episodes are bad, um, but when you do that personal challenge of, can I get it done, can I tell a good story, can I get it shot, can I get it on the air, and then you do it, it's an amazing, it's an amazing feeling, so I like, I really like that about it. And you're also, um, another thing I kind of learned last year is like when you're in charge, you're sort of responsible for the tone in the room um, in, in a way that like when you're, when you're like, even when you're an upper level writer in a writer's room, like it's very easy to kind of be like, well, this, this episode stinks or like we're never, oh, those notes were bad. Like we're never going to get this done tonight or whatever. And I learned very quickly that like, you can't, when you have that attitude as a showrunner, it's like a really bad. Like, you know, you can't, you can't be like running a rewrite and be like, well, this sucks. Because everyone's like, wait, it does? Like, did we make a big mistake? Should we not be working for you? And, you know, so it really requires like, for me, it required a lot of kind of like positivity and maturity uh, in a way that I kind of, um, you know, and leadership skills and stuff it, in a way that I, I sort of surprised myself and, and um you know, I think for me personally was uh, was like a really good thing. Like, I like I think my year of running a show and now doing it again this year, like it's made me a more like mature and positive person because you recognize you're like responsible for all these people and when they get to leave and and go home to their families and how they feel about the work they've done that day. So there there are good things. There are good things. Um, you know, I I 
sort of always say that like season one is the season that almost kills you, and then season two is the season where you try to do everything differently than you did the season one, so you don't die, and then season two almost kills you, and so then season three is where you actually realize that it's time to start putting some kind of boundaries in place um, so that it doesn't kill you. I'm curious, have you guys individually had that shift where you just laid down a ground rule for yourself in terms of how you could either you know, live your life or see your family or whatever that was, and and at what point do you stop sort of hazing your younger writers and, and, and encourage them to set those same boundaries? What is the season three you speak of? <laughs> it, it's so funny. I, I just finished a season three and, and, and we did short seasons. So it was six episodes, season one, 13, season two. 13 season three, and I was with you on how you feel about season one, and I was with you on how you feel about season two, and then season three, I was off board with what you said, because I didn't figure it out, because <laughs> I didn't, because there were no, because I honestly, just to be completely honest, I couldn't figure out how to do it differently, and I said I was going to, and I, my husband's here with me, because I t- don't see him, and so we came to Austin together, because it, because I, because I think, and I need more years of this, it's been two years for me, three seasons in two years, um, you know, maybe my mentor didn't teach me everything he was supposed to. Um, you know, but no, I've been on shows that have great hours, and it's a very, it's a very interesting um, situation to run a show that has terrible hours, which is, and people come up to me and say, oh, you, you poor thing, your show has terrible hours. It's like, it's me. I, I'm, the, I'm creating. I'm, I'm doing it. So um, I think, you know, just to be honest, I, there, I think there are times where you don't, I don't know, maybe if there's a season four, we'll figure out the formula. But, you know, sometimes I think you just make a show a certain way and then it and then that's how it's made, you know, unfortunately for me. Uh, To me, the heart, the biggest challenge of being a showrunner is it's it's every day is a race against time. Like I've never I've almost never felt that I wish we had more money on a show. But every single day I wish we had another three hours because that's the hardest part is that and and it's a job that could take forever. Um, and so it does become about like making decisions that uh, we're going to skip this today because we're just not we're just not going to make our day otherwise. But that's that's to me the hardest the hardest part is that you, you, there's never enough time. I, I think I learned stuff going from show to show more than season to season. I was doing multicam and I was in the room the whole time because you can be. And then we would go to stage and do run throughs and that kind of stuff. So the time was split. And then when we started doing My Name Is Earl, I thought. Maybe I could do that as well, but um, you're shooting all day long, and I'm a control freak, and if I get into editing and they said the line wrong and they don't have a take that's right, well, then what was the point of doing all the other stuff? So then I started to do this schedule where I would wake up at like 4.30 in the morning, and I would go through the script, and I would do notes all the way through it, and I would never go into the writer's room. I would just hand it to Danielle and the rest of the gang, and they would go through and they'd have my, my notes all the way through, and then they'd give me a script that was like 80 pages because it would have all the joke alternates, and then the next morning I would go through it again and whittle it down and what have you. So I was learning things from, from, from time to time, but then when I got back to multicam again like 10 years later, I was so used to not being in the room that I still, I, I couldn't be in there anymore. Like I'd have to like just go off and do a scene and then come back and forth. Like I just, for whatever reason, I lost that muscle of working with a group and then this new show I'm doing we're screening it at noon if anybody wants to come up the street uh, I just didn't hire writers because I said well, well I'm not going to do it I think that I can't be in a room you know to, to set that boundary for yourself I think that at a certain point and, and I see a lot of people sort of not never get there but you have to develop a, a, an enormous and perhaps completely false sense of confidence 
um, about the show and about your, your, your role in the show. And that leads to calm and to the ability to juggle everything. And look, there's, there's a story that I heard from uh, a, 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 one of the directors of the Die Hard movies, who I guess like they were rewriting the script while the movie was being made, and Bruce Willis is a producer in the movie, and, uh, and they had a 90-minute notes call like in the middle of production with the studio. And Bruce Willis you know, apparently was in the call because he was a producer. And then he like, like at the end of the call, Bruce Willis went, yeah, that's great. That sounds like a really good movie. Who are you going to get to play John McClane in that one? Um, and I think, look, at a certain point, you have, I mean, I mean, you're Julie Pleck, for God's sake. Like, at a certain point, you got to go like, I'm Julie Pleck. They're not making this show without me. And, you know, and, and, and you realize that, and, and, and it's almost like that, that should, you know, for me, what it was when I sold my show and I got my show on the end, I got it made. I'm like, this is a highly idiosyncratic piece of work that they can't make without me. So I'm going to go about my day and go about my business as, as I believe is best. And if they have a problem with it, that's that Titanic, then the problem will be there. So I have to find somebody who can write this show and it won't be me. But at a certain point, you have to let go of the fear that everything's going to fall apart and just be like, I'm here for a reason. Let's just start eating the elephant one bite at a time. And, you know, hopefully if, 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 if not, they can get somebody else to be John McClane, you know? So you guys have talked now a couple times just about mentors and allegedly great mentors and, and, <laughs> and, and raising your children from, from infancy. Um, so in the context of how much work there is to do and how hard it is to get everything done and how you're sacrificing your entire life moment to moment and your family at home, how do you find or not find time to sort of pick your person and say, hey, let me help you? And why, like what makes them the person that you want? I, well, my, I guess my, my mentor was Tina Fey because I worked on 30 Rock for six years and then she is an executive producer on my show. And because of that, um, I'll often uh, have to do interviews for like glamour.com about advice that Tina Fey gave me or whatever. And you know, the thing is like, um, I think the thing uh, the writers at glamour.com want me to answer is like, so every day Tina would take me into her office for an hour and would tell, tell me like, never cry at work or, or <laughs> women, you know, like, like, like women need to do everything men do in high heels or some you know weird soundbite or something. But the thing is, like, she never did that. Like, I don't think she ever gave me advice. It's just like it, you kind of through osmosis and watching her and seeing her successfully run a show. You just sort of, for me, I just sort of um, learned that way. And you know, and then when it's time for me to run my show, I kind of realize like, oh, I I know a, a, a lot about doing this job just from watching her. And and you don't have time as a showrunner. Like, I don't have time. You know. There, there's this, this stupid reality show called um, That's So Cosmo, where it's like a, a woman, where it's like Joanna Coles is running Cosmo magazine, and it's a reality show, and she has, um, she has a mentee that she always takes in her office and gives advice, and it's like, who is writing the magazine? How do they have time to do this all the time? And, you know, it's like, you don't have time to have an official mentor. You just, like, there's people who help you out. So you know? when you guys talk about Greg... Like what makes what did he do that made you feel like you were protected by him? Um, he, he what he what he really did, and he is a this control. This is like my funeral, by the way. He, he he is a control. He's a control freak. He's not lying, but he uh, gave me responsibility. Is how he mentored me. Um, he did not take me into an office and tell me women need to do what men do in high heels or anything like that. But he just um, allowed me to do allowed me to do things. And granted, I had to go check with him with everything. 
thing. Um, you know, but I think, I think that that's part of what, you know, and I'm not sure if your question was about number twos or how do you get the staff, you know, as you were, as Javi was saying, is so important. Um, he just allowed me to do things. I think he allowed me to run rooms, which is <clears throat> really the mini version of understanding the majority of what it is to be a showrunner is to take a small room and go run it. And I, I mean, I was a mid-level writer and Greg was letting me do that because, I don't know, he'd have to tell you why he was letting me do it, but, um, you know, and that kind of just understanding and being able to, I mean, I think that people talk about mentorship kind of dying in the industry. I don't know if it is or, or it isn't. Certainly, I'm gonna do the things that Greg did, which is that kind of stuff, allowing people to go into casting, to run a room, to see editing, to because it really just helps your own life. And I think it's it becomes obvious who the people are, who get it, and who are willing to help you, and who aren't doing as Tracy was saying that this sucks and this is so hard and this is we're not going to be able to do it. You know, the positive kind of forces who are like, we can do this. Give it to me. I'll stay late. I'll come early. I'll help you. Those people on a writing staff save your life. I mean, that that's the truth. And I think they they make themselves evident. And certainly, um, you know, I, I watched Greg, but he just allowed me to, to do things. And that's it. You know, I'm very grateful for that. I, I think it's, you know, when, when you when you put a staff together, I feel like when the writers come in the room, there's no more titles, as far as I'm concerned. It's all you know based on what you're doing in that room, and and it's usually pretty easy to see the people that you think can be showrunners at some point, and people that aren't ready for that yet. You know, it's the people that come in with solutions. You know, if you if you have a problem uh, on a Thursday, and then Friday you come in, there's people that come in and just kind of sit down and be like, "What are we doing today?" You know, and then there's people that come in with solutions from what yesterday's problems were, and those are the kinds of people that then you start saying, no matter what their level is, all right, you guys go break a story, you're in charge, you know, and whatever. And, you know, I wouldn't know how to tell somebody to be a showrunner, but I think what Danielle said is, and it's the same thing I did when I was on staff, is you watch people, and I'm sure, you know, Danielle's very nice, and I'm sure she, she does things that she saw me do, but she also doesn't do things that she saw me do wrong. You know, they keep their eyes open, and they see what works and what doesn't work. And uh, Go ahead, honey. No, I, I also think that you have to mentor promiscuously. I mean, you have to really mentor everybody. I, uh, the, the philosophy for, for me is that anybody who's working with me is, is, is basically in producer school. Um, on The Middleman, we had a, a, a writer's assistant write a script, and I'm like, great, go to casting. And she's like, but who's going to take the notes in the room? I'm like, we'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, go. And everybody, you know, and of course we assigned a senior level producer to kind of walk through that with that person. But it's like, I mean, to the like we are responsible for the management culture of an entire medium. So we are responsible for setting a good example of leadership and of mentorship. And that means that we mentor everybody. That means everybody gets all the same knowledge. Everybody gets all the same information. No one is more worthy of a better quality of information than anybody else. You literally give everybody all the tools they need to succeed. And then you see who, who is taking that opportunity. And look, to the point where uh, Jose Molina, who's, who's um, a co-executive producer on The Tick this year, and I started a podcast to teach people how to be people and how to work in, in television and in drama because... By the way, go ahead and give a shout out, give a plug because I think it's the kind of podcast that probably half the people in this room might already listen to, but if not, they might enjoy it. It's called uh, Children of Tendu. It's a stupid name, I know. All the good, like John August and Craig Mazin took all the good uh, podcast names already, so we don't know. Uh, it's called Children of Tendu. It literally walks you from uh, do I move to L.A. to my show's on the air. Um, and it's and it's just sort of our collected wisdom over our 40 years of and and, and it, all it is is an expression of the philosophy that if whatever we know you should know because the difference between you and us is as much the knowledge base as it is your creativity so we just want you to have the same knowledge base so when you get in there you can hit the ground running. 
T-E-N-D-U. I know it's a it's a it's a dumbass name. <laughs> there's a song called the, the, no no there's a so, there, there's a song called Counting Blue, Blue Blue Cars by a band called Dishwalla where the guy says we ask many questions like children of ten do, and Jose thought that was like a race from Star Trek. It's like who are the children of ten do? You know, and I'm like, children often, oh, never mind. So. I, I say, um, I had a writer come into my office around at the end of like, you know, the third year of his contract. And he said, you know, I'm just exhausted and tired. And, you know, he, he's like, and it's hard to rally every day because it's not my show. And I just looked at him and, I, you know, and I, with love, because I loved him. I said, but it can be. You know, if you stay and if you double down and if you get into it, it can be. I don't want to be here forever. Like, I want to go on vacation one day. You can have it if you stick with it. And I think that that's an important thing to know is, you know, there is a way to to just because you, you know, you're you're at a, an entry level. It can be in success, your show in six, seven, eight, nine years, you know, so um this whole room is probably filled with people who would love to have each and every one of you as a mentor and would love to climb the ranks to be showrunners, and yet everybody has to start somewhere. So uh, given your experience of what got you your first writing job, but not even like, oh, I'm finally getting paid as a writer. Like, what were the steps of, you landed on the ground in Los Angeles, and like, what were the sort of three, two, one, or 10 through zero steps of, of how you actually found the career that you got to have? And I'll just open that up to anyone who wants to chime in. I mean, I've always been a nerd. So for me, it was school. I knew, I knew nothing of, of Hollywood. And I got my master's in fine arts. MFA is very impressive. People say, what's the F? What's an F? MFA? Um, at UCLA. And that kind of is how I understood what the business was. And I took a sitcom writing class that kind of changed everything for me. So school has always been really important to me. And that is definitely an avenue to, to get started. Um, I started as my first job out of college was I was a page at David Letterman. So it was just like, a, and I got it because my, my mom's cousin used to work in accounting there or something and they gave my resume and it, you know, it was like a job where you just tell people uh, who are coming to see the show to like turn off their cell phones and stuff. And, but I met an executive producer of the show while I worked there and he created a show on ABC uh, that I worked as a writer's PA for, and then that show got canceled, and it filmed in the same building as 30 Rock, so when it kind of felt like uh, that show was, like, going off the rails, I, like, went around to the other shows there and handed him my resume, and he, and um, it was, like, The Sopranos was shooting there, 30 Rock, and, like, Gossip Girl or something, and um, I got hired as a writer's assistant at 30 Rock, and I did that for two years, and while I was a writer's assistant, I just kind of, like, tried to pitch jokes when I could, and um, like Javi was saying, they let me co-write a script, uh, even though you know I'd never done that before and didn't know what I was doing, and, and then they hired me as a writer uh, for season four, and I stayed there uh, until the end. I, uh, oh, you I, um, I went to college at a little place called Frostburg State University, and, and by uh, just luck, they, uh, they taught a sitcom writing class for like one semester. And, uh, and I was lucky enough to get picked uh, to come out to L.A. Uh, for two weeks on a sitcom and just hang out um, uh, because they did something with Warner Brothers, this class. It was a show called Room for Two with Linda Lavin and Patricia Heaton. And, um, and then I just packed up everything I had and drove out from Virginia and slept on a guy's couch that uh, worked at Foot Locker that I knew from high school. And, um, and I, got, uh, I started doing, just to make money, I made ex uh, did extra work on Beverly Hills 90210. I went to the prom. I graduated. 
I protested on City Hall, so Donna Martin graduates. Yes, absolutely, I was chanting. Um, and then I just sent a bunch of resumes around and I got a job as a writer's PA, you know, just getting lunch and delivering scripts. There was no email, so I was email, driving them around on a show called uh, Step by Step with uh, Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers. And then I got into another uh, Warner Brothers workshop that was like a 10-week workshop thing. And uh, then they told me they weren't going to put me on a show. And so I went back and PA'd. I was a little bummed out. But um, I saw some people going into an office from the workshop. And I just walked in there myself and introduced myself and kind of got an interview by just walking in. And the guy hired me. And that was my first job. My, uh, my first job was on a quickly canceled sitcom on a now defunct network called, <laughs> called UPN. And it was the, um, either the second or the third comeback vehicle for Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> um, and it was a train wreck, but my, the lesson for me was always take your first job, no matter what it is, because it got, it got my foot in the door and I met the executives of Paramount and they liked me and they, um, they stuck my resume to the people at Frasier and I got on Frasier's, so that was a pretty big leap from Andrew Dice Clay to Kelsey Grammer. Um, but, but never would have happened if I hadn't taken that, that, that shitty first job. I, I, uh, I always wanted to be a writer and I basically, like, even from when I was seven years old growing up in Puerto Rico, I like tried to find out how George Lucas got to make Star Wars and I found out he went to USC Film School and pretty much all I did was try to go to USC Film School for the next ten years. And then I did go to USC Film School, and then nobody bought my thesis script, which was a, I wrote in 1993, and it was a $100 million movie that would have starred Raul Julia, so you can see. Um, and, then, and then I got an opportunity through the minority uh, office of the school to interview for a job at the NBC network as an executive. And so I became this sort of junior executive, and two VPs of drama quit right before I got hired. So somehow I wound up at the age of 23 and 24, like, being the current executive on Sequest Earth 2 and Law and & Order. Um, and they did have a senior person with me, but it was very odd because like, and it was, in law, it was Law & Order before there were like five Law & Orders. Like literally I would get angry voicemails from Dick Wolf about the show's promotion and I'm like 23 years old, which is really weird. And, um, and then, um, and, and they gave me the show Sequest, and for two years, I was, like the, the, I was like the true believer of Sequest. All I wanted was for Sequest to be great, and like, I was the only person, including the showrunners of Sequest, who seemed to give a fuck about Sequest. <laughs> to the point where, like, like uh, so when I was at NBC, it's when they invented the, the, the thing where they have the third of the screen with the titles on it. You know, they used to have full screen titles, right? So, so on this side, they were going to have entertainment content, and they said, and, and the Sequest people kept saying, we're not getting any promotion. The answer was, yeah, because it sucks. But, but I was like, no, of course you're not, and you deserve promotion. So I took a documentary crew to the set in Orlando. I convinced NBC to give me money so we could make these mini Sequest documentaries that would go on the part of the screen where the credits weren't. And then, I, so I'm there, and I'm making these little documentaries, and the showrunner is walking off the set, you know, because, like, the dolphin won't talk or whatever. <laughs> and he goes, and he goes kid, you drink? I'm like, and, and I totally didn't at the time. And I'm like, yes, sir, I do. And then he goes, you smoke? And I totally didn't at the time. And I said, yes, sir, I do. And then the next thing you know, I'm like drinking and smoking with the showrunner at this bar in an Orlando hotel. And, and, and he starts becoming, you know, sort of maudlin and middle-aged. And he says, ah, someday you're going to be president of a network and you won't be hiring me. And I, and I go like, well, actually, sir, I want to be a writer. And he goes, well, if we, get a, if we get a third season, I'll hire you as a staff writer. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And then, and, 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 uh, and then the show, like, because he didn't think the show was going to get a third season. 
you know, and, 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 then, and then what happened was the show that they developed to take Sequest's position on the schedule was a show about spies who fought crime in monster trucks, you know, like you do. And, and so they had no choice but to bring Sequest back, and that's how I got my first job. It's amazing. That is, that is fantastic. <laughs> Um, all right, uh, shifting gears for a second to some, like, you know, some partnership questions. Um, just in general, if you could have a producer, director, a non-writing, a good non-writing producer, some, an adding value non-writing producer, um, or a co-showrunner, or all of the above, or none of the above, what would you choose? Co-showrunner. I've never quite understood the non-writing producer, although some of them are, can be very good. All you need is help in the writer's room, I feel like. It's all, just give me fucking story ideas. That's all, like that's, that's I think that's the most important thing. And it's great to have a great director and a great producer, but I just, I, all the help you can get in the writer's room, the better, as far as I'm concerned. And do you, would you want that co-showrunner to also be an extraordinary writer, or would you settle with total mediocrity? Uh, <laughs> if I, given the choice, I would choose extraordinary writer, I think. <laughs> Uh, it's not usually that clear cut, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that to me is the, the, the hardest part of the showrunner job is the writing part of the showrunner job. And so that's where I, I think all the, all the help. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we generate a script a week, which doesn't may not sound like a lot with that many people. But when you start hitting around episode 17, 18 in the, in the course of a year, you're just exhausted. So I think that's, that's, that's where I would take all the help. You know, most of my experience has been as, as a number two. I mean, I'm actually kind of shocked to be in this panel because I, collectively, I mean, it's the level of success here by far outweighs any that I've had. Um, so, so, you know, and, and, and frankly, to the point where, like, my goal has become to be the Joe Biden of television, you know? But, um, but what, what, what I've noticed, I think the, the, the biggest mistake that, that first-time showrunner showrunners make is that they, they buy a staff instead of casting it. You know, and I think that that one of the things is that whether you have a co-showrunner, a you know, any number, you, you're, you, the, the the biggest thing that you have to look at is how do the personalities that I'm hiring play with each other, uh, from the from the staff writer to your number two and even to yourself, because you know you as you said, you know, you want the whole package, but sometimes your number two might not be the most dynamic person on the page, but they can run the room and get the story ideas out of the the, the other members of the staff, and they can act as a mentor, they can do any number of things. So I think more than anything else, it, it's it's when you it, I think. I don't think that there's an archetypal thing of who is the perfect person to help you with the job. I think when you get a show, you look at the show and you say, here's what I need out of the show. Here's the, the work we have ahead of us. What is the best combination of people so that if, say, my number two isn't a great, a great rewriter, but he, he or she is a great room runner, then who's the supervising producer, da, da, da. And I think you sort of work it that way so that you don't have to rely on any one piece of the machine to do all of the work of the machine. Nice. Um you know, I, I do drama, I don't do comedy, and so I live in a permanent existential crisis about actors and what I should let them do to the script versus just being like, just fucking say every word the way it's written, and please, most of you guys work in comedy where it's entirely possible that the success in the voice of your show is equal parts yours and your, your front man, you know? Um, so my question is, what, in your current situations, you guys, and please feel free to do the show plugs, because um, I know two of you have actually shows launching soon. Um, what relationship do you like to cultivate with your leads, uh, and and what is that battle, or you know, or, or hell like, or is it beautiful and collaborative? 
my, my first show running job was I took over the last two seasons of Desperate Housewives. Uh, so that was a very uh, interesting... Uh, <laughs> um, I literally... Uh, I literally, my, my first month, had an actress come to me and say that the other actress refused to look at her in the eye while she was doing her scenes, and I had to, and I had to go yell at her. Um, so, um, but that made me realize the, the importance of her very early on, uh, you know, like day one, establishing a relationship with your cast. And, and I've never been someone who's been best friends with the cast, but you want them, you want them to feel heard, you want them to feel included, you know, let them, if you have a problem with a line, come talk to us. You know, I think, I think establishing that, that kind of collaborative, um, you know, relationship with your cast is, is, is the, probably after the writing, the most crucial thing you can do as a showrunner. I have a unique situation that kind of combines your last two questions because I did not create the show I run. Gerard Carmichael, who's a young stand-up, created the Carmichael Show. It is on TV right now, speaking of plugs. It's on NBC <laughs> right now, and it's on Netflix and Hulu. But so, so that sometimes is, is a situation where he's a star co-creator, um, you know, and, and I think that, that you could do a whole panel. You could do... 12 panels on that. Um, but, but it, um, you know, I think comedy especially, but I think all of TV is collaborative. And if you are not willing to work in a collaborative environment, TV is going to be very difficult for you. It may not be impossible, I don't know. But, it, you know, you have to figure out how to find the common ground in every situation, especially in, in, in my case where, where the guy who's going to be in front of the camera is in the room. I think my job, what I, what I, kind of messed up in season one and learned quickly I needed to fix was I can't affect, so there's, I say, there's writer Gerard, there's actor Gerard, there's real life Gerard, there's pretend, you know, there's TV Gerard, um, but I can't harm the actor who's gonna go in front of the camera because if I do that, then I've ruined everything because we could have a perfect script, but if the actors aren't gonna be their best in front of the camera, then you've screwed up, then, then, then you're not gonna get your best. So that was something that I had to learn that that balance can be so delicate that you can actually hurt your show because actors are sensitive. They're different creatures than writers. We're sensitive too, but it's a whole different ball game, I think, with actors and you can push too hard and, and uh, accidentally make it bad. And I think it's a really tough balance that you have to, that it is highly important to get that right. Actors have it tough too because they're, it's, it's them out there. You know, they're out there, and you, 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 know, you can write a show, and then if it doesn't work, you just sneak around to the next one, and it's their face, you know, on top of this thing. And um, you know, so I think it's important to uh, gain trust early on, you know, for that relationship, so that when you are talking to them, and explaining something, that they trust you. Um, my new show uh, is called The Guest Book, and. 90% of it every week is a different cast and a different story. So you're kind of under the gun very quickly. You, you only have a few days with these people. And so you want to try to get that trust right off the bat, you know, and establish a relationship as soon as you can. So I'm very uh, aware of that. You know, some people come in and do it and they're old friends and that's why they're doing it. And so it's already there. But uh, do you do a lot of improv or is it is it really no, specifically no scripted? I've never really done that on my shows. People have been pretty um, uh, just trusting in the script, and you know, we, we do work hard on the scripts for a reason, so they're that way. Um, if somebody has an idea, I'll, I'll listen to it. If I don't agree with it, I might say, if, I, if it's great, I go, great, let's just do that. If I don't agree with it, usually I'll go, okay, well, let's get it this way, and then let's do one like that, and, and, and what have you. But for the most part, no, it's, there's no improv. 
there's nothing I hate and despise more than improv. Um, I, I loathe it. And, you know, on my show, I just sat everybody down and I said, this is a word perfect show. Um, you have the freedom and it is your job to interpret these characters, to bring them to life, to figure out how they walk, how they talk and all of that. But the lines are sacred. And my door is open. If there's a problem with a line, you can call me anytime up until the day of shooting. And, and that boundary stuck. And, and the, the thing I hate about improv isn't that, you know, is that actually some are good at it and some at it aren't, but then if you encourage the person who's good at it to do it, then the next person who's going to want to do improv is the worst at it. In the, in the, like, literally, the person who can barely get a word out is going to be like, oh, I have an improv idea. And then the next thing you know, you're just, you know, so, so I, think, I think that with the actors and, with, and pretty much with, with everyone in your life, it, it, you know, it, it's not about being a dick about it. It's about setting a boundary where you say, this is the boundary that defines your job for my job. So you do your part of the job, I'll do my part of the job. And if you can't see that as sort of a necessary thing to do 22 hours of television for $100 million of somebody else's money, then perhaps you should not take this job. Oh, if only. And the thing, <laughs> you know, in comedy, like, I've, I've come from two different shows before uh, creating great news uh, that, that had very different philosophies on improv. And on 30 Rock, you know, it was word, word perfect. And even though, you know, Tina and Alec were amazing improvisers, no one improvised uh, because they really trusted the writing so much. And um, then, I, you know, I, I, I was a co-EP on the Mindy Project, and that was a lot more loose. And, and I will say, like... The, the thing is, in comedy, when, when it's controlled, like, you can sometimes find things on the floor that you can't find in the room. And it's, like, the most, uh, the most uh, you know, craft, craftily written joke to blow a scene may just not be as good as, like, Mindy, just, like, putting her foot in the toilet or something, you know? Like, that might just be funnier. And so if it's, like if everyone trusts each other and so on our show we don't improvise but you know we'll always do like a pass where if John Michael Higgins is like I have one I have one it's like let him do the thing he has it's usually pretty good show plug oh my show's great news it's on it aired on NBC this thank, thank you my one fan um, it, it aired on NBC this past season and we're coming back for season two um, they aired them like all basically on the same day so if you haven't seen it <laughs> Please catch up. It's on Hulu and on NBC.com and on iTunes. Thanks. Um, by the way, I should mention, Javi, is your, I just found out last night that you wrote like a 25-page manifesto. Yes. Like, I believe uh, it. Like, is there a link to it? Is yes. It, is uh, it? If you go to my website, it's OKBJGM. A couple things. OKBJGM. <laughs> OKB, the Russian initials for Experimental Design Bureau, JGM. Of Tendu. Yes. Yeah. My brand is Curated Obscurity. Um, and uh, not only is it's called the 11 Laws of Showrunning, um, and, uh, and mostly it's gleaned from my experience of 23 years of madness, rage, and abuse not, that has been wreaked upon me. Um, although every showrunner I've ever worked with thinks it's about them, which is hilarious and tells you a lot about showrunners. Um, <laughs> And uh, the other thing that's, that's on that website is every pitch, Bible, script for pilots that I have sold in my career. Not all of them, like you, the Xena pilot's not still there because NBC would probably get very mad at me if I leaked it because I had to quit and I didn't make it and that's the whole thing. But, uh, but so literally if you, uh, look, I don't think I'm special. I don't think I have the secret sauce. I don't think I do it better than anybody. But if you want to see how I've managed to cobble the... A semi-appearance of success with which I've landed on this on this couch among people who are vastly more qualified to speak out on this. <laughs> Go to my website, download the stuff, look at it, and that's how I did what I did. And if that helps you, I hope it does. So um, before we open it up to the floor, 
Javi and I were on a panel on Friday that was called TV in a Trumped Up America. And it was, it was such a fascinating conversation that I thought I would sort of circle it back to the end of this panel because, you know, not making any presumptions about anybody's politics um, in this room and on this stage, um, what was most interesting is a comment that Bill, uh, that Bill, that Bo Willeman made, which is like, regardless of where you stand in the political spectrum, the country got hit in the face with a two by four on election day. You know, some happy, some sad, but what it did was it created a, a sort of a cultural schism that will take us decades to recover from. And, uh, and, and the question that frames around that is, how do you guys as, as creators, as writers, as showrunners today um, feel like, have you sort of woken up and said, oh, I need to write everything differently? Have you sort of retreated and said, you know what, I'm just going to stick with the status quo? Is there anything that has impacted you directly that you want to talk about? Well, my show takes place at a, a cable news show, which <laughs> when I pitched it in, in 2016 seemed like just a, you know, a fun workplace environment. <laughs> and I, you know, and also kind of the landscape I was pitching it in was very different, like in the pilot which was shot two years ago, it was kind of like the jokes you were making about cable news were kind of, you know, CNN's been um, talking about the Malaysian plane crash for three weeks with no informa new information, and like, you know, Don Lemon is interviewing a llama live on TV. Like, it, it was more a joke about like how it's all become fluff, and now it, it's just completely different, you know? And so we shot the whole first season before the election, and we had... I think we had like two jokes about how Hillary Clinton's our new president, they, which, you know, we just had to change. But we've only been back in the writer's room for season two for one week. But a lot of our conversations have been about, you know, without making, and I don't want to make Donald Trump jokes. Like there's, place, there's a million places that you can go to hear funnier, more current Donald Trump jokes that weren't thought up in a writer's room two months prior. But what are the ways that we can talk about the state of cable news right now and, and tell stories that have some sort of um, hopefully clever comment on that and the way people view news and, and why cable news is you know, such, such a, uh, a place people go to unleash their rage right now. Um, and hopefully that is something we can tackle in our second season. Yeah, and, we, and I was on the with uh, Bob. We're on the the, the socially um, the social social relevant sitcoms, or, yeah, socially conscious sitcoms. Which so the Carmichael Show does talk about socially relevant, and some of you might have been there. I don't want to repeat myself, but um, you know, we our season two finale was about Trump, so that aired a, a summer ago, um, and, and was about the election, and that was still that was the primaries, and so it was you know interesting that it, um, we called it. No, we didn't call it. Um, but <laughs> but I you know there there are just I'll give you a funny example. So this season we had, a, it aired already, um, it was the second in our premiere because NBC likes to just air them all together, <laughs> like Tracy said, but um, it was called Support the Troops and the fact that Trump was president was relevant to the story. I don't think that we went at it because he was, because I think whoever the president would have been would have been relevant to the story, but we had a joke where there was a picture of Trump and as we were shooting that, he was already the president, obviously, but it kind of felt, it was a little bit more like, could he be impeached at that point? And it was like, I don't know, we're kind of living this world where could he, couldn't, and we shoot kind of far out because we you know we were a summer show and so we were going to swap out the pictures and do a joke of Pence so we had Trump and then we we're gonna do Pence and then we we're gonna do Bannon just in case because we weren't exactly <laughs> sure what, what was happening and then we ended up just leaving it Trump because it's kind of like well what, how can you you know it's hard to kind of 
stay up to that. And so um, we just aired it early just in case he gets impeached. We wanted to make sure that it aired um, in time. So, you know, you, you do get affected even in, in funny ways by that. That, that, is, that is fantastic. And I, I'm told that it is now time to open the floor for questions, during which any point a question is directed anywhere near you, Bob, I think you need a show plug. I do need a show plug, yeah. yes. <laughs> Feel uh, free to give it now while okay. we line up. <laughs> Superior Donuts, 9.30, 8.30 Central, Monday night, CBS. Fantastic. Thank you. Hey, questions start with who, what, when, and how. They don't start with I. <laughs> this man has been to a lot of cons. <laughs> um, how has all your jobs Get to come to cool stuff like this. That I don't know. That didn't used to happen before. I mean, this is this is fun. I've been a showrunner for like two minutes, so I don't. <laughs> I don't know. This, this has always been my experience. Like, a... I had no idea we were stars. <laughs> I think you you have a you, uh, no. Please go ahead. You, you just you have you have a bigger conversation with your audience. They want to hear from you, and you talk to them on social media, and it's great. And then uh, that's what you do. Yeah. And the red. I've been a number two more than I've been a showrunner, and I haven't been a showrunner for a little while. I mean, right now, uh, the hierarchies are so weird that, you know, like on, on the, so, so it, honestly, look, as writers, as people who do what we do, what we're taught from an early age is you write your way out of any bad situation. Your show got canceled, yeah, you write another one. Your, you know, your episode didn't turn out well, you write another one. You got a divorce, you write a script. You stub your toe, you write a, you write a script is the answer to everything. So, I mean, look, it, we, we, lead, we lead these Samuel Beckett lives. I mean, it's not, it, it, the, the formula for our success is not, for some of these people, it's the titanic inspiration and natural gifts. But for most of us, it's just like literally, hey, here's a thing I did. That thing ended. I'm going to do another thing. And then you, you just keep going till you die. That's it. There's no, there's no secret true. sauce. You just keep writing. Absolutely. I also true. think like you know anybody would love to hire somebody that's been a showrunner as their number two because they they get it. And then anybody that's been a showrunner, a lot of them would love to take the job as the number two oh because God. like you you don't have you get to sit there and look at the showrunner, you know. And like on, on my name is Earl, there was a very talented showrunner named Victor Fresco that does a show Santa Clarita Diet, and he was a consultant on My Name Is Earl, and that guy's never been happier. I mean, oh God, he was a nice, and now he's running a show again, and he's like so, he's like so stressed. And Victor's the most easygoing guy. He's like, whoa, no, he's not. He was just a consultant on My Name. Is yeah, like Victor on My Name Is Earl. Victor would come in the morning and have cereal every day, and he had a bowl and he named his bowl Bowley. I guarantee you, while he's running a show, he does not have a name for his bowl. Go ahead, sir, in the front. Uh, in the room, when does the love of comedy, does it go too far? When do you have to reel it in? Oh, a, th a thousand times a day. <laughs> it goes too far, but... Uh, 
you know, I think that's part of the license of just of people being feeling free to, to say things. And then, you know, thankfully, we have there's a lot of time between then and air date and filming to cooler heads can prevail. Yeah, the um, first few jokes, yeah. you know, aren't going to be able to go in the script. I started off in like Miller Boyette shows with Family Matters and 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 that kind of stuff. And and you'd hear like filthy things in the room, and then you'd be like, all right, let's get what we can do. And then I went to work on um, Family Guy, and people were throwing things out there, and I was like, ha ha, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, oh shit, they're putting that in. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, there, there definitely is. Um, uh, there's a, a very talented person that runs my production company that's sitting in the back, uh, Alex Jaffe, and she's an executive producer on the show that I'm doing right now. And she um, she was a development uh, or a current executive at CBS. That's how I knew her. And she would always give us great notes. And then when it was time to uh, to do a production company, uh, I hired her to to run it. And and there's a lot of like. Like Bob said, there's a lot of like non-writing producers that it's just like, why are they here? It's just like an anchor, and they're just taking up money. But a good one gives you great notes, and and also has the freedom of not thinking like exactly, like a writer might be like, I don't want to write that, or you know, or a director, producer, director might oh, that's going to be too hard to shoot. But they can come to it with a perspective of just like what they think will be good, and then it's it's the other people's job to, to figure it out. But there's definitely a, a path to do that. I, I mean, sometimes it's weird. Sometimes they come as agents, and then they become that. It's all Managers, different ways. Yeah, Alex is great, and, and, and uh, you know, because she's also finding ideas, and you know, like that, that's, that can be very valuable. People who are like generating ideas for series, and, and there from the, from the beginning. The, the, tr the trouble is when it's like, the star's manager, that kind of, you know, that, yeah. I, I always say, and when I give this advice, I say, if you control the content, you have a job that they can't kick you out of. They can kick you out of the room, um, but they still have to pay you. So um, if you, you know, have a short story that you have optioned, uh, you know, a, a book from years ago that you optioned, and anything that where you are selling something tangible, especially in this day of age, an age of IP horse, um, meaning intellectual property, and studios don't like to make anything original because they can't really believe in original things, so they just buy things that have already been written. Um, anyway, whoa, I got deep. Uh, <laughs> I would love to keep talking, but uh, I've been getting the, this for about three minutes. So, uh, you guys, thank you. Great, thank great you so group much. here. Thanks for the chat. Thanks, all of you. Thanks again for listening to the Writers Panel. Once again, my name is Ben Blacker. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker and tell me who you want to see on these panels. I'm always looking for new guests. I always want to know what television you are enjoying. Like the Writers Panel on Facebook at facebook.com slash tvwriterspanel. Visit me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. Please do remember to rate and review the Writers Panel on iTunes. It is really helpful to keeping us visible, something that's very important in these uh, transition-y times, but even after these transition-y times. Also, as I said, it makes me feel good about myself. And what writer doesn't need that?
thanks again to Forever Dog and to the ATX Television Festival and this new ATX Television Festival podcasting network endeavor. Be sure to go to atxfestival.com. Check out this year's fest. There's so much great stuff coming up. I hope to see you there. And I look forward to you hearing me again next week on the Writers' Panel. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.